I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to Imposters, a podcast from The Telegraph. Have you ever had that creeping feeling that you don't belong somewhere or that you don't deserve your success, even though you know deep down that's not true? Yeah, me too. I'm Claire Cohen, The Telegraph's women's editor and co-founder of our Women Mean Business initiative. In this podcast, we square up to imposter syndrome and demand to know what its deal is. In each episode, I talk to a woman who is out there carving a successful career in a challenging industry, whether that's food or film, fashion, or even flying to the moon. I want to know if they've ever experienced imposter syndrome. If so, what convinced them to keep going anyway? If not, what's their secret? So without further ado, let's meet this week's imposter. If you turned on a television or opened a magazine in the early noughties, you'll be familiar with my guest today. As one half of the formidable What Not To Wear double act, she spent years on primetime TV stripping women naked and putting them in front of a 360-degree mirror. Now she has translated her on-screen success into social media domination as a beauty entrepreneur with a devoted Instagram following of more than half a million, mostly women, who draw inspiration from her videos and straight-talking advice. Welcome, Trini Woodall. Thank you very much. I had terrible trouble writing that intro, actually, because you are quite simply the queen of reinvention. And if I'd listed all of your career twists and turns, we wouldn't have had any time to chat at all. You see, I listen to that and I think, oh, why are you still going about something I did 15 years ago? Maybe contextualising because some people might not know what I do now. My business is, a, you know, a beauty company. So you mentioned everything about it that's how I look at the intro. <laughs> it's really interesting to see you did what you take from perception, mm. which is the right thing to do because you have thinking of your audience and you're thinking of, they'll maybe remember me being telegraphed from my telegraph days. We and were then, coming to that. <laughs> so it's just interesting yes. that, but that just, I mm. did think that it was going through my head when you said it. <laughs> being really candid. No, it's interesting because I do want, because you're, you know, you are very candid about your own story and, um, you know, all, all the sort of twists and turns and ups and downs. And it's interesting actually to know how you look back on it mm. and what you think are the bumps in the road or what you think is passe and you don't even want to talk about anymore. Yeah. So is what not to wear one of those things you're just not interested in really chatting about? I think that 
I'll talk about anything, but I think, you know, what not to wear was 20 years ago. So that's a long time ago in my lifetime of what I've done since. My career is not a reinvention. It's an evolution, you know, and, and what has been consistent through it from age six is making over women. <laughs> and I'm just using different tools. I suppose the point, I think, for a lot of our listeners and a lot of the people who are devoted to you on Instagram, your Trini tribe, as mm. they call themselves, is that they, what not to wear probably seems like yesterday for them. And that is where they fell in love with you and what you do and your straight talking and your attitude to life. Yeah. And so that, for a lot of them, I imagine, is why they are so still devoted to you and want to follow you now. I'd probably say for a third of them, actually, when okay. we do okay. our kind of stats of who follows and the mm. age group. I think there is that, but I'd say it's very equally balanced out somebody in Chicago who discovered me yesterday. And that, to me, they're equally good and the balance is good. I would not like to have only one or only the other. So how important is it for you to be a role model to those women, especially the women who perhaps like you have experienced some of life's ups and downs and got back on up and carried on? I think it's the thing that gives me most joy is when a woman will come up to me in the street and first of all feel she can come up to me and just start talking about anything. I've always loved that about the job I do, that women do feel they already know me, so they come up and they just start halfway through a conversation and I readily take it up. So I always say to anyone who wants to go and says, I saw you stay in this restaurant, I saw you stay at Heathrow Airport, but I didn't want to come up. And I go, you should have done. You know, it's nice to... I always enjoy a conversation. I learn something new every single time I speak to a woman. So I think role model sounds uh, odiously responsible. I think have being inspiring to women to feel energetic, that they can do anything in their life is where I'd prefer to, uh, how I'd prefer to describe it. Just giving women energy and positivity if they don't feel that day they've woken up with any. I mean, they love you for being incredibly candid about your own struggles, whether that's your addictions, your experience with fertility issues, divorce, whatever it is. After all those years of asking women to bear their souls and their bodies, I guess, mm -hmm. to you, do you feel some sort of responsibility to them to return the favour and strip yourself bare? Um, I think that in the show, we weren't how to look good naked as a show, you know, which was about having the comfort to strip yourself bare. We were about going on a journey with a woman and there was that 360 degree mirror, which for a lot of people like, oh my God, it was that oh my God television. But when you dissect what it was as a show, the contributors didn't feel that, you know, and there was a lot of writing about the show as, oh, because that's what makes it more dynamic or interesting to watch or, or the, you know, what the press will put out on it, you know, the PR team inside BBC will put out on it to get more engagement with a journalist. <laughs> but I never felt that with the show. I never felt that with the contributor. I never felt a contributor afterwards said I felt laid bare and exposed. So I don't feel it's anything like repaying the pain I put through somebody before. I feel that it's always been really important to be honest. So on that show, I was always very honest about myself. And to go on that journey with somebody, you need to go on it equally with them you know, you need to expose yourself as well. So it is very important. And also, I think in this world of influencers and all the people we watch on our Instagram feed, there are so many people who filter or, you know, pose or um, have 19 inches of makeup. And so the comparisons for women, everyday women are like so insurmountable, or they just feel, oh, really, you know, so I just think, I don't, I'm also, when you get to over 50, you don't give a shit about certain things. So I don't care that I have no makeup on. I don't care my hair is, I do care my hair is orange, which it was this morning for about an hour. But, you know, there's certain things I don't care about at all. 
And it's so much easier then to be revealing of yourself. So let's talk about confidence. Yeah. Um, I want to dive straight into imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. The feeling that you are a fraud or that you don't deserve your success or you don't deserve to be somewhere. Is that something you've experienced in your life, in your career? Very young, because I didn't have great success at school. So when I left school, I went to university and I, it was a mixture. I wasn't focused at school and I had, you know, like my parents said to me, if you do in the top 10, you, I was 23 out of 24 in the class, you can go to New York. So I came third. You know, I had that sort of, I had it in me, but I wasn't doing it. And so I started, you know, I wanted to start in a job that was better. And I started as an assistant in a commodities trading firm. And then I kind of worked my way up a bit. But all the time I was aware that that I was assisting and I wanted to speak about my job as if it was more because I felt it was less than what I should be able to do. And all through my 20s, I went through probably about six different jobs. And I felt that all the time. And that was a basis of you know, I'd say half my friends had gone to university and half hadn't, but the half who hadn't weren't on a serious career path. And there was a part of me always that actually wanted to have a career, but I felt I was slightly, you know, I'd I'd go for interviews and somebody say, oh, you've moved jobs quite a lot. You know, that classic sort of, you have no answer. So when I got to about 28, I took some time out and I came back and I thought, I really just want to now slowly build So I worked as an assistant to a man who was starting kindergartens. And it was just, you know, for the first three months, I remember feeling I can't even type a letter anymore. And then one of my closest friends died and I had to help arrange the funeral. And it was so odd that that thing made me realize how efficient I could be because it was like 600 people I had to locate and they were all around the world, get them to Germany, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I did it because it was the passion of, I wanted my friend to have all these people, you know, kind of acknowledging how she died very young. And, and I thought, actually, I don't need to stay at this job. I could do something a bit better than this guy who treats me like shit and I hate it and it's lonely and whatever. So, but you've got to begin to get those little nodules of faith underneath. So you haven't got quicksand, you're building a little brick. We should also say that during those years, you overcame addiction. You kind of left behind this fast party lifestyle that mm. you'd, you'd led for um, quite some years. And I, I was reading about it before we spoke and going to rehab and thinking, God, that must have been really terrifying. And then I thought, actually, I wonder if the scarier thing was having come through that, then going back actually into the real world and being faced with this yeah. thing of what, what do I do now? Yeah. And that feeling of literally nothing to support you. So outwardly, when you go down the path of addiction, you have, you know, you medicate um, to not be feeling vulnerable. And I, you say you can't. And then you're kind of so, I remember going down the Kensington High Street and nearly having a panic attack, you know, just that overwhelming sense. I'd spent nine months in the countryside coming back and thinking, you know, starting totally again. What were your kind of ways of dealing with that vulnerability, looking back now? Going to meetings, I went to meetings every day for seven years, you know, and then eased up, he's got to sort of many, many years clean. Um, so I think that is a, was a really supportive um, part of it for me. Having different friends, You know, you evolve your friends according to your circumstance. And I kind of then picked up friends I'd had when I was much younger. And they were kind of more consistent, reliable, loving friends. 
family has been important to me, but my friends have been really important to me. And my parent, you know, when I went to boarding school very early, so I didn't, I didn't have the kind of parents where I'd tell them anything. So in terms of imposter syndrome today, mm-hmm. what does that look like for you? It's lacking in energy. It's just probably a physical tiredness. You know, I put a lot into my day. I start my day very early. And you are a whirlwind as anybody who and follows I am you a, will yeah, know. Yeah, a whirlwind, which means that being 56 and having that kind of day and having more energy than quite a few people in my office means I don't go out that much a night. I have to think, where am I going to put the energy? So am I going to put it into socialising and friendships? Or am I going to put it into work? And then to me, my work is so varied. And because it's my business, it feels you know, I'm not giving everything to somebody else. I'm giving something sort of in a roundabout way to myself. And I enjoy it. I love it, you know. And so I, so when I go in the office, and I'm not feeling full of energy because I'm maybe feeling a bit overtired. That's my hardest day because then I still need to get through all the things I normally do in a day. And I'm just like exhausted by it. I feel like once somebody's had imposter syndrome, you can certainly kind of overcome it and get to a place where you feel like you deserve your success. But I feel like it's harder to get rid of that inner critic that kind of goes round and round and round your head. And I wonder whether you still have that and what it says to you. I think when I do something, so like I went to New York and I was just doing business there. But one of the things I did do was I talked at Women's Wear Daily, did a beauty forum and I was one of the speakers. And I suddenly got a fear and I thought, you know, I I should plan this. I usually never, ever, ever plan a talk. I just get up on stage and I chat because that's the way I feel most comfortable. But I suddenly felt I need to have stats. I need to prove myself to my peers. It was going to be full of all the leaders in the cosmetics industry and beauty industry. And so I got my team and my CMO and, and Dido and I said, Let's, you know, I think we should put some slides. What's the most important things I should say? This is like so left a field for me to do, right? I picked this title, which was to, um, Marketing to the Invisible Woman. And I felt really comfortable. I, I picked this title up um, and I then called the woman at WWE and she said, that's a great title. Great. We'll put that up. And then about four days before I thought, is that the wrong title? Will those invisible women feel, are you, are you being patronizing and saying I'm invisible? with my knowing that it's not that they feel they're invisible, it's they feel that companies make them feel invisible because there's such a lack of inclusivity around age in the beauty industry, which I cannot bear. So I started, you know, those feelings did come up, Claire. And so then I'm sitting there in the amphitheatre at the Natural History Museum in New York, just about to go on with these slides. And um, and I just think, literally, I mean, I ripped them up get on the stage (laughs) and I just think okay I've got those slides in the background it will prompt me but I've just got to chat so was it having that safety net you needed in that situation it came from a place of thinking I didn't know enough so I needed a prompt of what I know and the thing is we all know a lot more than we realize and all it is is a level of the confidence to say it but I really believe anyone in a role that's asked to say something they know their stuff they just got to remember they know their stuff. How do we remember that, though, if there's somebody We just got to tell a story. A so if you're in any situation where you're standing up in front of people, you've just got to think, there's a title, really helps, How to Market the Invisible Woman. There's the passion I feel about 
what are the things I believe around that subject? What do I believe emotionally and emotively that I can convey to this audience around that subject? So I do believe that there's tokenism amongst older women, like L'Oreal has Helen Mirren tick, and then Jane Fonda, 19 faced, is a fantastic woman. I'd love to be her at her age. But still, you know, two token women tick. You know, and if we look at so much in the media today, if we look at the fact that, you know, I work on this morning, their average audience, they always want to skew slightly younger, but their average audience is probably 50 to 70. Um, so that woman is, is not wanting to turn into her mum. And she wants to be inspired and she wants to feel ageless and she wants to feel included in the conversation. And so I feel so strongly about it that I can get on stage and say to the head of Northern whatever, hey, what are you doing to include that woman? And does she really want to see another 16-year-old girl in makeup to sell her makeup? No. So I, so then as soon as I'm in that passion mode, I'm fine. And passion is what it is, isn't it? it? Is. That's and, what it's about tapping into. And that's what you listen to when you, you know, if you're listening to somebody talking, if they're just doing a ton of stats, we go, zone out. But if somebody's talking from the heart, you listen. So all it is, is that your passion. Talk from the heart. Yeah. I think that's a good tip. Do you think imposter syndrome, self-doubt, lack of confidence is something that women experience more than men? I hate the male-female comparison. I really find it's like, do everything you can do to be your best and ignore the fact there's a man in the room and just feel it and don't feel the comparison because then I feel the comparison will be there less. But I read a story mm. that when you were in your 20s mm. and you were working in broking, I think, yeah. you pretended to a client over the phone that I was a man. That you were a man because you have this lovely kind of deep voice. You got away with it. Yeah. And they never found out the truth. So what was it about that that made you feel like you had to pretend to be something you weren't? That was 40 years ago and the difference in 40 years of attitudes. So Your own or society or both? Society, for sure. You know, I was one woman amongst 60 men on a kind of um, sales trading floor. So that tells you a lot. The environment was so profoundly different. And the man had thought I was a man. You know, I didn't pretend to be a man. He thought I was a man <laughs> from day one. So, and also, you just didn't correct you know, him. He didn't correct him. So, there was definitely that feeling there. And I think when I was 27, is the last time I worked in that kind of environment, that something made me get out of it. Um, maybe it was that. I haven't in my career had many male bosses apart from somebody like two bosses up. So like when I was doing telly, maybe the boss of the bosses was a man, but my around me, my editors and producers were always women. Um, so I didn't come into contact so much with the male-female inequality in my career as much as somebody who worked in a more classic environment, you know, like I had started out my environment. But in 40 years, there's been so much, so much movement. Female bosses is an interesting one because obviously we would love them to always be supportive, but mm -hmm. they can be just as tough mm -hmm. and just as, well, bullying, I guess, in mm -hmm. some cases mm -hmm. as men. And I think that's yeah. the thing that's not really talked about, actually. It's really interesting because just because you're a woman in charge of another woman, does it mean you should treat her extra special? There is an assumption, perhaps, especially today, that you've got to be in the sisterhood. It's a very tricky one. I have, a, I have an office and it's 80 5% female. And I treat everyone the same, whether they're a man or a woman. I treat them entirely on their performance and their contribution to the business. 
So I love the fact that we're predominantly female and our audience is predominantly female and the products are for predominantly females. 10% of our, of our customers are men, by the way. But I love that. I love the whole halo feeling of that because I'm far more a girl's girl. So I just always feel cozy um, with other women. I read this lovely quote that I've got written down here that your um, ex-husband Johnny once said about you that was the steeliness that people see in her is really a cover for her chronic shyness which I thought was really interesting is Mm. it true um I think it was definitely true then he said that probably about 20 years ago um because I am can be uncomfortable sometimes around people and so I'll just be cool or, you know, I'll, I'll appear to be cool. And I think when Susanna and I were together, Susanna was always the one who was easily cozy with people. So it allowed for one of us of the team to do that. So I didn't have to feel the pressure of doing that. I feel I'm very different now. I mean, I feel that I can really be outwardly what I feel inwardly and I don't feel so shy inwardly and I think when I hit 50 so many things settled to feel comfortable within me you know my my element of belief in myself has risen greatly from that time when that happens then that fear which makes you seem colder just because you don't know how to communicate with people has left me a little bit so you um and Susanna worked on BBC on What Not to Wear from Mm. 2001 to 2005. You then went and did a whole load of programmes all around the world, helping many, many more women. But it did all come to an end and quite brutally. And you'd also experienced quite a lot of other personal life events in the same period. Your marriage had broken down, you'd had fertility struggles. I mean, you had nine rounds of IVF that you've spoken about Mm. very publicly. Did it feel like this great groundswell of... Um, just terrible things happening in your life all at once. They came sort of, when you look back, it all looks like one thing. But, you know, we did telly in England 2000 to 2007. Then that died down. But then this, we had done one little show for Belgium and we took it and then 12 countries said, can you film it? So then we had five years of filming abroad, probably earning a lot less, working twice as hard, being away from the family. So that was quite stressful at the same time. I I split up with Johnny. So that was difficult too, of just being, knowing also that I was a sole breadwinner and needing to bring up and care for Lila, but knowing the only work that I could be employed for was abroad. So that was very tough and not knowing how he was too. So, you know, that was very difficult that time. And that time was kind of up to about 2010 or 11. Um, And then we stopped in about 2012. So we were doing, you know, we'd do in a year, we might do Israel, Australia, Sweden, Norway, India, you know, in a year, I would see I would know the people at the departures of Heathrow Terminal 5 better than anyone else. And that was really a lot of work. That was like nine months traveling, I took like 50, 60 flights a year. So it was just a wake up call to go and get the work where you somebody wants to employ you. um, And don't complain because you need to pay the mortgage. So that was quite full on. And Suzanne and I got really exhausted by it. And I had for three or four years had this idea for Trini London of this stackable makeup. And I'd been taking it around where I was and, you know, just in my head, always in my head, never the courage to take it out of my head. Imposter syndrome probably lurking inside there with me. So 
then by 2012, that was pretty difficult because I'd kind of, I was divorced, my marriage ended. Um, I was then thinking, I want to start this new business. And I was in a house that was too expensive for me to run and pay the mortgage. So, so there was a lot of that. That was probably, you know, 2013, 2015. Very difficult. Yeah. I mean, you rightly point out that these sort of these sort of knocks did happen over the course of a few years. But I think, I don't know, things like that take a few years to get over, especially when there's a cumulative effect. Mm. I mean, how did you get up in the morning and not look in the mirror and just think, God, everything is falling apart? Because you can either choose to live in fear, which will induce more fear, or you can think, how can I make the best of today? And that's a conscious choice. And I think that I've seen from the outside how living in continual fear and then not making the best decisions, can what it can lead to. And I have more of a survival instinct. So even when things were very bad and when Lila's father killed himself, those things are also wake-up call to everything. It's like you have to, you know, that kind of, you think you really need to make the most of every single day. And certain things in your life reinforce that thought. And it also makes you aware that there's certain things you cannot control in life and they go on a path and it's beyond your control. So you have to let go. Did you ever have therapy? I did. I had therapy when I got clean. I saw Julia Samuel when Johnny died, who was amazing. When um, Johnny died, the day Johnny died... I was, Lila was coming home from school and I was just thinking, how on earth am I going, what am I going to say to a 10-year-old girl? And my sister called Julia and she came to the house and she told me what to say. And I just, you know, I was stuck on, how do I tell her? I was like, just thinking. You know, she was brilliant. So in 2017, you took control of your own destiny mm -hmm. and became your own boss and launched Trini London. You said it had been in your head for quite a few years, but what made you take that step and sort of put yourself first, if you like? I'd had this situation where I really had been thinking about doing it and working towards it, and then Johnny died. And I remember at the funeral, two of my oldest, closest friends, husband and wife, who are very caring and loving, said, Trini, you know, we know you want to do this business thing, but is this the right time? Because you have a responsibility to Lila. You know, you need to provide a roof over her head. You need to look out for her. And do you think this is the time when you should be taking the most risk? And they were very kind. And they, you know, they even were saying, you know, if you need help, we'll help you. And I remember going to bed that night and thinking, what do I do? And a part of what made me think I have to do this was I thought to myself, I'm sort of unemployable because like, you know, I've, I've carved out this career, which is a very defining one. So you to hire me for a totally different job, what job would you hire me for? So then I remember calling them the next day and I said, look, I, I, um, I have to do it. I believe in it. I just know in my gut that I couldn't carry on my life thinking I didn't try. I can't do that. They did end up being one of my investors. Did they? Yeah. Yeah, they did. That's true support, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's true support. 
So let's talk about that because yeah. at The Telegraph we have the Women Mean Business campaign, mm. which is all about boosting female entrepreneurship in yeah. Britain. And we have heard from so many women awful stories of investor meetings mm-hmm. where they've been told, oh, this is great, but you need a man to help you. And you went in. That's a killer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And you're going in to see investors and you're pitching a beauty business. Mm-hmm. And I should think it's probably mostly rooms of men. So how did you kind of bridge that gap and make them not see it as a frippery, as I imagine some might? I think that what I learned in the many investor presentations I've done, and I ended up with a really great um, business investor, Unilever Ventures, but I met many who weren't. So some meetings I found they just talked to Mark, even though Mark is quite a quiet, accountant-driven COO. And so... This is one thing I did in one meeting, and then I thought, I'm never doing that again, is I I can be quite dominating in a meeting. I can't imagine that. Okay. <laughs> so I was chatting, chatting away, and then I thought, Mark hasn't spoken enough. So when they asked about the figures, I knew every figure in my head, but I thought, I need to he- let them hear from Mark so they know why Mark's in the room and what he can contribute. But I remember doing that i'd like i'd never go to a meeting not knowing every single thing i need to know so i do think you need to know that because i think men appreciate figures over emotive facts so you've got to talk to the audience in the room and i've done some meetings where i have just talked about too many things about a bigger picture and they can't grasp enough to make them feel confident to invest. So that's what men need to invest, I always feel, just from those experiences. And those are why those investors told us no. And one of them was like this kind of half moon of like nine men and one woman, Camilla. And I remember I went with with Jane, this investor, because I said, I'll bring her along. She has such great knowledge about the beauty industry that can be added fuel. And they all sat there, I'm going to just show you now, with like one leg over the other and their arms behind, clasped behind their head like this, okay, leaning back. Then she emailed, so they emailed saying, oh, not for us. And then she emailed a week later saying, when you do find investment, can I come in privately? And that gave me, that was the first time where I thought, this is good enough. She's a good investor. They had a majority rule, so she didn't get a chance to convince the others. So I know, I know, I know this is a good project. I know this is going to make a brilliant company. When we did a panel together a couple of years ago, you gave a brilliant practical tip on how not to be intimidated in those meetings, mm. which was about imagining people very, yes. very small on the chair. Yes. I wonder if you could just tell no, that for the listeners. I, I learned this from a very nice man called Sanjay, who I do guided meditations with. And when I was going to investments, um, I would have these in my head. But one of them he gave me is anyone you feel is trying to control you or intimidated by you. You just literally imagine them sitting in the chair opposite you, lying in bed next to you, you know, in a restaurant with you, wherever it might be. And they just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you have to imagine things like they can no longer, you know, put their legs over the, the chair and and they're just really tiny. And then they lose all their power. And it, it's it's a very good visualization. So I did use it a bit. And I used to go in my little mini driving to investor meetings with Sanjay's thoughts in his head. And I'd literally be waiting in the reception with this stuff. And then the man would come in and say, okay, I'm ready. And you're imagining him like a borrower sat on the chair. (laughs) I love it. So other than um, securing investment, what were the other major hurdles or things you're apprehensive about when starting the business? I think that when you invent and build a proposition, 
you do it because you have utmost belief in the product. So I knew I had, you know, 3000 bits of information from all the women I'd individually spoken to on a one-to-one over 10 years in my head, like going to a beauty counter and thinking, how do I choose from 97 different foundations? Or how do I know which red lip suits me? Or how do I do that makeup on my lip, cheek and eye that goes together? You know, all these things. So I wanted to put all of these things into also being portable and stackable and great products. So there's a lot, there's a high benchmark for what that is. And then I sort of spent a year before I launched talking to this growing online community just about the important things I found in makeup and in a way sort of seeding my belief system. So I just thought, let me get the women on for the ride who appreciate, understand and agree with my my sense of it. And so by the time we launched... We had a very nice uptake from that audience because they kind of were already committed to the concept and then I gave them the answer. So that was a very organic journey, but that helped me so much to think I'm doing the right thing. And then in the last year, we had five times growth. We we are two, you know, we're under in the top 50 best performing high growth companies in England, online businesses which is my CMO says to me, you know, Trini, take a step to take a step back and celebrate what we're doing because the growth here is incredible. And sometimes I think you just push yourself every day without taking a step back to look. So let's talk about social media because, you know, at the same time, broadly, that you were launching the business, you were launching yourself as an Instagram, now a star. But how daunting was that to kind of take that first step onto Instagram, make that first video I mean, did you expect the success you've had? It was, um, I remember coming back from Facebook. I'd gone to see them because I just thought I need to look at this medium. You know, it's quite early on. It's like 2015. And I came back and I just put my phone on in my bathroom and I just started chatting. And, and it was that classic thing like we had at the beginning of the interview. It was like, are you that girl for what not to wear? Are you the skinny girl for what not to wear? You know, somebody in Abu Dhabi or something. And then, and I just thought, oh my God, this this is interesting. And I like the fact that I'm, but I'm very comfortable on the camera because that's what I've done for so many years. So it just grew. It just grew and grew and grew. And this is what's so exciting that we live in this day and age and we can be an online brand shipping to 58 countries and have on social media over 50 countries who are communicating with us. It's just, it, it couldn't be more exciting. This community of women and the Trini tribe that started separately on Facebook were women who followed me and then just started wanting to talk to other women who were following me as well. So those then mushroomed and now there's about um, 32 tribes around the world and there's probably across those, the global tribe and the other tribes, about 30,000 women. And I love that because then you can be knowing the, and these women are unbelievably supportive to each other. They have meetups and it is fantastic. And 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 by following me and and being with that community of women, you know, we get many, many stories of women saying, I do things I would never have done before. So to me, the brand is about that. And we happen to sell makeup. It's where you have been trolled or just faced out and out criticism. It's those people who say, oh, the business is just a vanity project. And oh, Charles Saatchi's probably bankrolling it behind the scenes. I know that probably gets to me more than anything else, because it's like, you know, the furthest from the truth. The furthest, furthest from the truth. How does it make you feel angry, frustrated? I haven't read it so much recently, but I remember the Times said, let's do a piece and you're starting the brand. And it was literally like, 
the front cover was literally like Catwoman or something. And I just thought one thing of any friend who's known me for many years will know that I'm the most self-sufficient person they have ever met. So that probably for somebody who's very far away from me in terms they don't follow me on social or anything, they'll probably believe that article. And I can't control their belief in that. I know, you know, how hard I work. I know that I pay for every single thing in my life apart from the roof over my head because I live with Charles, but every single thing I pay for and, and every element of, you know, even what I put against business expenses, I'm careful about, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm so that kind of like, can I put my hair color against a business expense? Is that okay? You know, it took me a year to feel actually that is okay. Cause I wouldn't have had my hair colored um, this much unless I was uh, doing the business. So that is frustrating. And I haven't read it so much recently, but I'm sure it's out there. But it's just like, people will make assumptions. So what was the last thing you read or heard about yourself that did hurt you? Uh, usually anything that where it's something about Lila, which is very rare, then I'll be really... Like when I didn't want Lila to understand the full extent of what happened with Johnny, I wanted to be able to control the conversation. So I, in fact, called up somebody who ran a newspaper and I said please do not print what I think you're going to print. And they didn't. Then there was a newspaper who went to company accounts and went, and I've read this of Victoria Beckham. I've read this of Stella McCartney. Just that thing where they say, even Charlotte Tilbury, I read this, that like, oh, they still owe this much and they've had to borrow again. Now, if you start a company and you raise finance, you do a round, somebody invests money. So you invest 2.1 million, you set a valuation, the valuation was set at 15, they invest on that. You then start to spend that money and you get revenue coming in and then you get not what you owe other people, it's their investment to own a part of the business. You know this stuff, Claire. So, but that's not what people understand. So like right now we are doing so unbelievably well as a business. So, so I just said, okay, Mark, call them back and tell them in plain English how it works. So Mark rang the bank. He said, actually, great. You leave it very happy with us. They've made this investment. We, we've gone to profitability from September. The, not, no article came out. But when that article came out the previous year, because it always, they always look at end of year accounts and they look at that. I was like, you, you know, you don't know how to support British businesses that actually are doing well, employing people, growing a business, doing really well within their sector. And then you write that shit without any knowledge of how businesses work. So that probably, you can see I'm getting angry. Well, this is the first time I think I've ever seen you angry yeah, it about was like, anything. Yeah. Really pissed me off. Really pissed me off. Yeah. I mean, you, you famously do not mince your words mm -hmm. and you didn't then. Is it... Does it come naturally to you or is it ever sort of a defence mechanism? No, it's very natural. <laughs> I mean, I sometimes have to, like, there are things I say in the office sometimes, I think, and, and everyone kind of will laugh, you know, but I will just, I will say what I feel, yeah. I will say what I feel. <laughs> Would you call it oversharing? Probably. How does it play out at home? Like, is Charles an oversharer or does he, how does he react to your sort of confidence? I think that I'm, I've grown up a lot in how I am in a relationship by being with Charles. You know, I think I don't let myself get away with stuff. So if I, if I have a 
kind of outrage. He'll go like, really? Are you kidding? And then I'll go and sit upstairs and I think, okay, let me grow up now. <laughs> so I think that's what happens when you're with somebody who has been through a lot in their life. And there is nobody who is more supportive of my business than Charles in terms of being my champion. And, you know, he might say nothing and then, you know, we'll be just in some, like, sitting in a cab going off somewhere and he'll go, you do know how proud I am of you, don't you? And then turns into another subject. Do you think that growing up is a product of being with the right person or is it it being a sort of later life love, if you like? Probably a combination of both. Yeah. I'm very content in my relationship. Very content. I'm wondering whether you would have used the word content for your, in your life generally, not just your relationship until this point. I think that's very true. Because I think you need to have more of a belief in yourself, less imposter syndrome, a sense that the things around you are working. You know, I kind of feel... I feel Lila is in a happy, good place. She's had a tough time. She's got immeasurably more self-confidence than I had at her age. It's a miracle, but I've had something to do with it. But, you know, she's a great kid. I feel that my relationship is content and I'm happy and I hope that I make, you know, I know I make them happy. So it's an equal relationship. And I feel work is something that is limitless in where it can go. It is limitless. Um, I don't know what is in store for me in the future. But I think I've faced some quite big challenges so far. Well, let's look ahead and what you hope it holds for yourself personally and for Trini London. For myself personally, that um, I see Lila flourish without too many difficulties, you know, because I, I want to, you know, protect her and hold her like a little precious flower. And there's going to be moments when I'll have to let go and, you know, have faith. And that's going to probably be the hardest thing for me. With Trini London, it's about not always feeling, what more can we do, what more can we do, but just feeling that, that sense that it is growing beautifully and to celebrate that growth and to nurture it um, and to be a really good role model for the team who, who make it grow. That's kind of my biggest thing I would like to do well is to be a good role model for them. I think that's the same answer. Letting go of both of them and watching both of them grow. Oh, you're very good, Claire. That's Thanks. very true. That's very true. <laughs> I so enjoyed speaking to Trini Woodall about her success story. She's one of those women who comes across as the most energetic and confident in the room. And yet, when you dig deep... It hasn't been smooth sailing for her in the slightest. And I love that she defines her career path as a process of evolution rather than reinvention. Right, time for some admin. Have you followed Imposters in your podcast app yet? Have you told a friend? Have you rated us five star in Apple Podcasts? If not, do at least one of those things right now. We'd be very grateful. And finally... 
If you'd like to read more from me and my colleagues at The Telegraph, you can get yourself a 30-day subscription for free by visiting telegraph.co.uk forward slash imposters. Goodbye. Imposters was produced by Maddie Hickish and Theodora Leloudis. Sound mixing was by Elliot Lampett, and it was a listen entertainment production for The Telegraph. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>